If you would, open with me in your Bibles to the book of Acts, um, chapter 2, verses 37 through 47. If you don't have a Bible, the scripture verse is printed in the bulletin for you to view. And would you please rise for the reading of God's word. We do this out of respect for the speaker who is God. This is God's word. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling all their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Join me now in prayer. Lord God, we thank you that you are sovereign over the salvation of your people. That it is not something we have earned, but it is something that you give. And you give us through the power of the Spirit to behold Christ and to cling to him in his cross and to see that in him alone we have salvation. We pray Father, that by the power of the Spirit, you would illumine our hearts and minds to be able to receive this word, to take it to heart, and to be encouraged as we examine the earliest church whom you also established in Christ and through the power of the Spirit. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Is it just me or is my mic off? Am I good? Okay. Sorry about that. Technical difficulties. Speaking of technical difficulties, two years. Nearly two years ago, as of January 31st, this small group of people met as a church for the very first time. And it was an exciting time as we wondered what the future would hold for our small little church. What would God do through us? How would he grow us? Fast forward two years later, and, well, here we still are, even with our difficulties and everything. We should be encouraged by this. We've grown, even if it seems little by little. We've seen the Lord bring people to salvation. We've seen baptisms of adults and children. We've seen people praying for one another, serving each other, attending to people's needs. It may not look like much, but the Lord is using us. And some of us in this room have contributed just countless hours into serving this church and often without thanks. So we can be encouraged by these things. But on the other hand, perhaps some of us are looking around here and maybe some of us feel discouraged. Maybe some of us 
think that we haven't grown as much as we've expected. Or maybe some of us are frustrated because you feel like you've taken on so much of the work of building up this church and you feel like others are not really doing their job or should be doing more. Maybe some of us are just growing tired. In fact, I know some of you are tired. And that's something that's totally understandable as of this state in our church. We're two years in, and, well, we still got what seems like a lot of work to do. Maybe it's even worse than that. Maybe perhaps some of you think when you see this church, you're like a parent and you see this messy two-year-old. Now, I'm not a parent, so bear with me when I say this, but I do know about the terrible twos, that time of age when your toddler starts grabbing everything they can and throwing food and water, uh, their toys and spoons and plates all over the place. Potty training isn't going well. You could probably add to that list of things that happen. And I imagine that some parents probably say to themselves when they see their two-year-old child, this, this child right here, this tiny, snot-filled child is supposed to grow up to be an adult? Oh, no. <laughs> In the words of Admiral Akbar from Star Wars, it's a trap. But perhaps you feel that way about our church. Maybe you feel like it's a trap. (laughs) That it's this snotty, messy two-year-old, and you think, we're supposed to grow this church into a self-sustaining, financially independent church, complete with a staff and elders and everything? Oh, no. (laughs) Count me out, guys. I'm kidding. And after all, we did read just a passage from the book of Acts, and we see that very early in the church's history, the Lord grew his church by 3,000 people. And so maybe you read stories like that, and of the church meeting together, sharing possessions with each other, and you think, man, why can't we be like that? Why can't we grow like that? Why are we a two-year-old and not a fully grown human being. I think we can step back, though, for a little bit, re-examine this passage, and see that this passage can actually encourage us rather than discourage us in our state where we are at right now. Too often, I think we tend to focus on the things that we can do to grow the church, like programs, events, um, evangelistic outreach, and so on, and we forget that we're not the ones who grow the church. Someone else is at work behind us and through us. And we see that in our passage too, that it's not the apostles that grow the church, it's the Lord God himself. And the same thing is true today. And so that can free us from the burden we may be feeling to feel like we have to do all these kinds of things to grow the church because we can rest in the sovereignty of God as we go about our ordinary way of doing things. And so my thesis for this passage, my big idea, if you will, is this. The Lord grows his church so we can grow together in ordinary ways. Let me go ahead and say that again. The Lord grows his church, so we grow together in ordinary ways. Let's go ahead and take a look at this in three points. First, the message of the gospel. Second, the means of grace. And third, the mission of the church. So that's three M's. The message, the means, the mission. 
I move on to my first point, the message of the gospel. I'm going to go ahead and read verses 37 through 41 again, if you'll join me. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. I should give some context for what is going on in this scene. Jesus has already died on the cross. He's already risen from the grave, and he's already ascended into heaven. But before he ascended into heaven, Jesus promised to give his disciples the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit came, he would empower the disciples to be witnesses to Jesus, to the world. So Jesus ascended, and then the Holy Spirit came. And when that happened, we're told that the apostles began speaking in tongues. That is, different languages that they themselves did not know, but other people around them could understand. Now, they were in Jerusalem at the time when this event happened, and at this time, it was the Feast of Pentecost, otherwise known as the Feast of Weeks. So there were Jews and Gentiles, converts from all over the Roman Empire, pouring into Jerusalem in order to celebrate this feast and event. And the Holy Spirit was empowering the disciples to speak tongues in their midst so that people from all over could hear, could hear the disciples in their own language and be like, wow, we can actually understand what they're saying. And these people are Galileans? That's kind of weird. You don't see that every day. It's extraordinary. In fact, Acts tells us that some of the people were amazed, but that some thought the disciples were drunk. Oh, you guys had too much wine. Crazy people. Well, Peter responded to the slanderous charge, and to paraphrase what he says, he basically says, we're not drunk. Rather, what has happened here is the fulfillment of a prophecy given long ago when the Holy Spirit would come upon all people, and salvation has now come in the person and work of Jesus. So Peter quotes the prophecy from Joel chapter 2, the one actually we read earlier today for the reading of the gospel. And he uses that passage to explain that the coming of the Spirit and empowering people to speak in tongues is the fulfillment of that prophecy. Peter also mentions that this Jesus that he mentioned is the same one that the people crucified, but... He is now risen from the dead and is now Lord and Savior over all the earth. And that's the message that Peter gives in a nutshell. So we come now to our own passage when we see how the people respond to the message. And in verse 37, it tells us that they were cut to the heart. The image here is of being pierced or stabbed, almost like with a sword or a knife, but in a figurative way, to describe the intense feeling of regret. These people are convicted of something they have done wrong, and very wrong. I mean, Peter did accuse them, after all, of crucifying Christ, so there's that. And the people realize that they were partly responsible for that. So part of Peter's message did include bad news on the one hand, but he doesn't leave them there. He also gives them good news, a gospel. And this is the good news he gives. Jesus had to be crucified in order to conquer sin and death. 
God's plan all along was that the very one the people killed and refused to acknowledge as Lord would then rise again from death and then take his place as Lord and Savior over all the world. It was part of God's definite plan. And then remarkably, Peter tells the people that they could be forgiven of their sins and receive the same Holy Spirit that Peter and the other apostles themselves had. That's good news indeed. That these rebels of a sort could be reconciled to the very God they killed. Now, granted, Peter did require a response from the people, and that response is twofold. First, he tells them to repent, and that means to turn away from their rebellion against the Lord they killed and to instead turn to him in faith and obedience. Peter also tells them to be baptized for the forgiveness of their sins. Now, the passage makes it seem like that these two things, repentance and baptism, are conditions for receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit. I think maybe a more accurate way is to say that it's associated with repentance and baptism. Because we see elsewhere that in the book of Acts, like in chapter 10, in Cornelius' household, the Holy Spirit comes upon these Gentiles without them even being baptized first. Then later they're baptized. And then I think another thing to keep in mind as we look at this passage is that these things, repentance and baptism, are not conditions that we fulfill on our own power and strength. They're things that God enables us to do. In fact, in Acts chapter 11, when the apostles realize that God is bringing salvation to the Gentiles, they say that God has granted repentance to the Gentiles and granted them repentance also. They're implying that it was God who has always granted repentance to his people, even to the Jewish Christians before. And the final thing is that our passage itself also suggests that these people's salvation isn't from themselves, but it's from God. If you, You see in verse 41, it says, Those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day 3,000 souls. And then there's a similar phrase in verse 47, where it says, And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. So part of the message of the gospel should be that we include a response or a demand for a response to it. Repent, believe in Jesus, and even be baptized. But if people respond, let's be assured that it is God who enables people to respond. So that we can say with Paul in Ephesians 2, this is not of yourselves. This is the gift of God. Another thing about this passage that I think we should keep in mind is I think we tend to focus on the extraordinary things that happen, like the speaking in tongues. And then later in Acts, we also see miracles of healing and prophecies and whatnot. And we tend to focus on those things and think that those are the things that are bringing people to a conviction of sin and of faith in the gospel. But I don't think that's what's going on here in our passage. You know, such miracles that happen in the book of Acts, they're not ends in themselves, but they're means to an end. I mean, the tons certainly made an impression upon the people for good or for ill, but that, those miracles weren't the things that cut them to the heart. It was the message that Peter gave that cut them to the heart. The message of sin and salvation in Christ. The gospel. So the miracles were meant to point to the message that salvation has come in Christ and that the Spirit, long foretold, has come to be poured out by Christ onto everyone who believes in him. 
So even in the midst of extraordinary things happening, like tons, it is the ordinary hearing of a message spoken by words by other humans that the Lord uses to bring salvation to 3,000 people that day. And we should be encouraged by that. We tend to look at our churches in this country and even in our own little church. And we try to think of so many means that we can use to grow the church, whether through extra programs or events. And some of us, through those things, hope for miracles or for a great revival that hundreds and thousands of people would come to the faith. But it's not these it's not what we, we do so much that brings salvation, but it's the Lord who brings salvation using his spoken word message, the gospel. That's what brings salvation to people. And wherever that gospel is preached, there, there the Lord is at work. Now, granted, we can't always expect that every time we preach that message, 3,000 people will come to the faith. I mean, if God grants that, that'd be awesome. But that just doesn't happen all the time. But even if God brings salvation to even just a few people through the ministry of our church, even just a few, and we've seen God do that, then the Lord is working through us and is causing his church to grow. And we have a hope also that the Lord will cause our church to grow through our children. As Peter tells us in our passage, the promise of the Spirit is for you and for your children. We baptize our own children in view of that hope and promise. If you're not a Christian and you're here today, then I should tell you that this gospel message is for you too. Our text also tells us that the promise is for those who are far off. And that includes you. You see, all people have done things in rebellion against the living God who made the world and whom we have spurned in anger and rebellion. And that's what sin is, to rebel against God and to disobey him. And there is coming a day when the Lord will return and who will judge all people. And those who remain in rebellion will be condemned forever. But there is good news. Your sins made it necessary for Jesus to go on the cross just as the Jews' rebellion led to his crucifixion. But that was so that Jesus could rise from the dead, live and reign as ruler of the world, and offer forgiveness of your sins. And there is still time to turn to him and receive forgiveness. So repent, turn from your sins, and believe in the name of Jesus and you will be spared from that future condemnation. But instead, you'll receive forgiveness of sins, you'll be declared righteous in Christ, and you will be given eternal life forever. That same message was given by Peter to these people. And so, our passage describes them receiving it, but our passage also describes what the people do after they receive it. The Lord doesn't leave people as isolated individuals, but he uses the message to form a community in which people can continue to grow together. Thus I move on to my second point, the means of grace. I'm going to go ahead and read verses 42 through 45, if you'll join me. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. 
And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. There are a few things that our passage uses to describe this early church community. And we'll go ahead and take a look at some of these things. The first thing is that the people devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Now the Greek can also be translated as continued or persisted in the apostles' teaching. So the picture here is that these new converts to the faith, they're receiving ongoing, continued instruction about Jesus, who he is, what he did, and what he commanded. And there's a good reason for this. It's because, well, they don't know everything about who Jesus was and what he did. Maybe some of them, being Jews, heard rumors. Or maybe some of them did see Jesus do some things. But the apostles were the ones who knew what Jesus had done, what he said, what he commanded. And so they needed to learn more things. And I think there is also a need for them to continue learning because people have a tendency to forget what they learn. We see this throughout the Bible's history. For example, God gives the people revelation about himself and delivers his people, say, from Egypt. And then quickly the people forget and they go and serve other gods. Wow, that escalated quickly. You might say. And that's what happened when we read Exodus 32 earlier in the reading of the law. The people turned from the God who had given them the law at Sinai and turned to serve other gods. And we see this again and again in Israel's history. We see it happen again and again and again in the judges. And we see it happen again right before the exile. And some of you here who are parents probably know a little bit what this is like too, this forgetfulness that we have. Because we know that our children often disobey the same rules again and again and again. And so you have to tell them again and again and again the very same thing. And you hope that finally this time they won't forget that this rule actually exists. Of course, often to no avail, but you try But you know, we as adults forget things too. Even when we come to church every Sunday, let's say, how many of us remember the sermon that was preached on the next day? To be honest, I remember very few. I mean, how much more would we forget about the grace of God in Jesus Christ if we stopped going to church altogether? I mean, then our church would certainly be a disaster. We wouldn't even be a church if we didn't come together. <laughs> well, this uh, two-year church plant was a great idea, guys, but bye. See ya. Let's not do that. Um, so this ongoing teaching, then, that we see the early church practicing, this is a means that God uses to remind them of the truth about himself and his grace, who he is, what Jesus did, and what it means to obey him in the power of the Spirit. And that's why we continue to come every Sunday, to hear the good news and what it means to be a follower of Jesus in light of that good news. So my first idea is their devotion to the teaching. The second feature of this community is their devotion to fellowship. The word in Greek translated as fellowship can also mean close relationship with other people. 
And in fact, the word in Greek also shares a similar root to the word that's translated common in verse 44, the part where it says, and they had everything in common. And so I think our author here, Luke, intends to make connection between the two words, fellowship, and having things in common. So their fellowship kind of looks like this. They knew each other so well that they knew what each other's needs were, and they could then go and meet those needs freely and willingly. And tangibly, what that could look like is they sell their possessions and they share the proceeds as people had need. Now, I should clarify that the nature of this sharing was voluntary. People weren't forced to share anything, but they desired to share their possessions in view of the fellowship and love that God himself had shown them in Christ and then now pouring out from them to other people. Nevertheless, I think this portion still challenges us Americans a bit because I don't know about you, but I like my stuff and I like my money often too much but we know what Jesus taught about possessions. That even though they're not necessarily bad in themselves, they're incomparable to the treasure that is the kingdom of God. Thus in Luke chapter 12, Jesus taught his disciples not to worry about their lives, their food and clothing, because the Lord would provide these things as they needed it. Instead, He taught them to seek the kingdom first, and then the Lord would provide what they needed. In that same passage in Luke 12, Jesus also tells his disciples not to worry, and instead to sell their possessions and to give to the needy and seek instead a treasure in heaven where the thief cannot approach and the moth cannot destroy. He also tells them, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Our text in Acts chapter 2 is showing us a church that in its fellowship and in their sharing of possessions, that the heart of this people is not for their possessions, but for the Lord, for each other, and for the kingdom of God, which has been inaugurated in Jesus Christ and in the power of the Spirit. And when we see fellowship and generosity practiced in our churches, we can be encouraged that this is something that the Lord is using to remind us that our possessions are not ultimately ours, but God's. And that His kingdom is better than our current luxury. And that he is a God concerned not only with what we believe in our heads, but with what our bodies need. He is, in other words, a God who saves people, both body and soul. Thus, the fellowship of the church. A third feature of this community is the breaking of bread. Now, it's debated exactly what that phrase, breaking of bread, refers to. Some people think it refers to the more common meals that Christians would share with each other every so often. You know, breakfast, lunch, dinner, or whatever. Just have people over, have a party. Others, however, think it refers more specifically to the Lord's Supper, to the bread and wine which Jesus commanded the disciples to eat and drink. And I'm of the opinion that it refers to the Lord's Supper. And the reason why I think that is, well, it's not obvious in the English, but in the Greek, the way that it's phrased is actually the breaking of the bread. It's trying to tell us, hey guys, this isn't just any ordinary bread. This is the bread, the one that Jesus broke. This is the Lord's Supper. And so here in Acts, we have people remembering 
the command that Jesus gave to his disciples to take the bread and eat of it and take the wine and drink of it and to remember the sacrifice Jesus made for them. And more than that, to remember that because they have the Spirit, they have fellowship with that Jesus when they celebrate the Lord's Supper. We don't just celebrate the Lord's Supper as a symbol. Through the power of the Spirit, He actually brings us up to the heavenly places and we can eat and drink with Jesus within the power of the Spirit. And so we celebrate the Lord's Supper in that same light. And it is a means of grace that God uses to connect us to Jesus again and again and again. And to remind us that it is his pleasure to give us the kingdom and the gifts associated with it. Thus, the breaking of bread. A final feature of this community is their dedication to the prayers. Now, these may include informal, everyday prayers, you know, the ones you say, like in the morning and the evening and so on, in private. But likely these prayers also include more formal prayers like the Lord's Prayer or maybe even the prayers that Jews would say in the regular hours of prayer at the temple. Now, we'll get into the issue of the Jewish Christians worshiping in the temple in a minute, but suffice it to say for now that these prayers were another indication of the early church's fellowship with the Lord. They recognized that the Lord has not left them alone, but wanted continued fellowship with them, and that they could come to God, to his throne room, through the mediation of Christ and in the power of the Spirit, and know that God hears their requests. They're not under condemnation. They're not enemies of God anymore. They're friends of God. God is their father. And so when we pray, we have that same confidence every time. We know that because of what Jesus has done for us, we can approach the Father in the same manner. Know that he hears our requests and we have loving communion and fellowship with him. Thus, the prayers. So these were the four features that marked this early community. The teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayers. And you'll notice that I didn't even touch upon verse 43. And in verse 43, it mentions the apostles doing more signs and wonders. More miracles and probably speaking in tongues as well. Again, I want to emphasize the fact that these miracles serve more to authenticate the message of the apostles and to mark the fulfillment of prophecy. But let's not miss what marks the community even more. It's not the miracles, it's not the speaking in tongues, the healings, the prophecies. But what marks the community more is their dedication to teaching and preaching about Jesus to fellowship with each other, to the Lord's Supper, and to prayer. And that might strike us as rather ordinary. But that was how they were growing in their fellowship with God. And that's how they were growing in their fellowship with each other as well so that then they knew each other's needs and would give their possessions away freely in light of what God has done for them in Christ through the power of the Spirit. And these things, teaching, fellowship, breaking bread, the prayers, these, my friends, are the things that show a church in which the Lord is at work. And if we continue in these things, as we have been, then we can be sure that the Lord is still at work among us, too. Now, we may not do some of these things perfectly. We'll still sin against each other. We'll still often be selfish. We might still act like two-year-olds. 
But we have a Father in heaven who understands who we are and is holding our hand as we grow together in fellowship with His Son and with each other by the power of the Spirit. We've now talked about the message of the gospel and the means of grace. And these are the things that fuel our growth together. But more than that, they also fuel our mission to non-believers outside of our church walls. And so I come now to my third point, the mission of the church. I'm going to read verses 46 and 47. If you'll join me. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This part of our text tells us that the Jewish Christians are attending the temple and breaking bread in their homes daily. Now you may be wondering, wait, why are the Jewish Christians still worshiping in the temple? I mean, Jesus has already come, and isn't he the real temple? Like, why do they need the temple? I think we have to keep in mind the position of this passage in the broader story of the Gospels and the book of Acts. We know that Jesus had predicted the destruction of the temple in Luke chapter 21, but the disciples didn't really know when exactly that was going to happen. I mean, Jesus gave them some signs, but not anything like specific like a date. And frankly, the disciples probably didn't really even know the full significance of that prediction. I mean, later, of course, the church would come to see the church itself as the new temple with Christ as the cornerstone and built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets and their teaching. But for now, at least in our passage in Acts, some of these Jewish Christians might still be hoping to a hope for the restoration of the kingdom of Israel. In fact, before Jesus ascended, the disciples asked him if he was now going to restore the kingdom of Israel. And this was an understandable question because many Jews of the first century expected a political savior who would come deliver Israel from the hands of the Roman Empire and restore the kingdom of Israel to its former glory, to the glory it had in the days of David and Solomon. And maybe some of the Jewish Christians still thought that, which was why they were still going to the temple and worshiping. Of course, their expectations would probably change after a while, after they see salvation coming to the Gentiles apart from temple worship. And if any Jewish Christians were still holding on to the hope of restoration of the kingdom of Israel, even after that, Well, the Romans destroyed the Jewish temple in A.D. 70. So the Jewish Christians are still worshiping at the temple. But at the same time, the temple was also an ideal place for the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem to spread the gospel. The temple mount itself, the courtyard and everything in it, was about 35 acres. That's a lot. And it could fit plenty of people. And this is also the time of Pentecost, so hundreds and thousands of people from all over are coming into Jerusalem. Prime pickings for the preaching of the gospel. And there would be in the temple scribes and priests and teachers of various kinds, as well as Jews worshiping or even just conversing with each other. Not to mention that it was also used as a marketplace at one point before Jesus drove people out of it. So the temple was a public place 
and it was common for people to teach there publicly. And in fact, Acts will show that the apostles do continue to teach and preach the name of Jesus at the temple, even in the face of persecution. So the Jewish Christians were not only worshiping in the temple, but by doing so, they were opening up opportunities to talk to other Jews about Jesus and spread the gospel. Our text that we read also tells us that the Christians were breaking bread in their homes. Now, breaking bread in this verse, in verse 46, probably refers to the more common meals that Christians shared. And the reason why I say that is because unlike the breaking of bread in verse 42, the articles are not present. It's not the breaking of the bread. It's just breaking bread. But even these common meals have results that are relevant to the mission to the non-Christians. The text tells us that they received their food with glad and generous hearts. They were being thankful to the provision of God for their daily needs, and more so for the salvation that God has given them in Jesus Christ. And that was starting to affect their attitude and the way that they lived. So their worship in the temple, their breaking bread and receiving food with glad and humble hearts, this has an effect. And the text tells us even that they had favor with the people. The people take notice of their worship and their attitude, and that kind of notice and favor would have opened up opportunities to explain themselves, to spread the gospel and bring new people into the faith. And we see that's exactly what happens. Our text tells us at the very end, and the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. So that was a lot to take in. My apologies for that. But let's summarize what this mission of the church looks like. It looks rather ordinary. It looks like people doing everyday stuff that was expected of them. I mean, the the Jewish Christians are praising God in the temple as would be expected of a Jew. And the Christians are sharing food with each other and as they do that, they're growing in their fellowship with each other and showing their growth in their attitude. So, the mission of the church doesn't have to be as complicated as we often make it. I mean, not that I'm saying that planned events are bad or anything. They can be wonderful. But let's not lose sight that spreading the gospel can also happen in ordinary conversations, in just meeting people around us, friends, family, neighbors, around the dinner table, at work, wherever. We can spread the gospel just in building relationships with other people and even with people noticing our way of life and the fact that we worship a God who's different from us. And they can see then that our hearts are resting in the salvation given us in Christ and the provision that God gives us every day. So we don't have to look for extraordinary things like miracles and we don't have to get anxious if we don't see a great revival. I mean, if that happens, then again, that would be awesome and we can hope and pray that God brings more people into his church. But these last few verses in our passage remind us that the Lord grows his church not only through great moments of revival, but also through the ordinary pattern of worship, fellowship, and opportunities that open up to us to spread the gospel as people notice our way of living. Be encouraged, friends, that evangelism is informal as well as formal. So let me go ahead and conclude this already too long sermon by saying this. 
two years we have been a church. We may not look like the church exactly as the book of Acts paints the early church. Doubtless we'll still sin against each other, we'll still annoy each other, some of us will still be selfish and, well, act like children in their terrible twos. And I'm no exception to that. But let's step back for a minute and see what we do have. We hear the gospel preached. We see baptisms of adults and children, people coming to salvation. We have teaching, fellowship, the Lord's Supper, and prayer, and even ministries in which we can express generosity and hospitality. So let us be confident that even now, the Lord God is in our midst. Growing his church as we grow together in ordinary ways. And let us also hope, too, that people who don't believe will see our worship and our way of living and then say, God is really among you. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let us pray. Lord God, Father God, we thank you so much that it is you who grows the church and not us that we are instruments in your hands to bring the gospel to the world, but that ultimately it is you who convicts people of sin, of their need for salvation, and to rest in the work and person of Jesus Christ. We thank you that you have saved us, those of us who are selfish and often ingenerous, unkind, and bitter. We thank you, Lord, that by the power of your Spirit, you are working within us individually and as a church to grow us in the image of Christ. And we pray, Father, that you would continue to grow us in Christ through the power of the Spirit. And when we grow weary, remind us of the good news of Christ, and may we be fed and nourished by it. And then, Equip us to go out into the world and spread the good news of the gospel. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.